Our passage today is Luke 12, 1 through 7. It says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were there trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom, who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Good morning. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer first. God, we come to you um, weak and needy people, myself the foremost. Um, God, I just pray for the strength of your spirit and the encouragement of your saints. God, we just ask that as we, as we delve into this passage, that we would have soft hearts, that we would be encouraged by the love you have for us, and that love then propels us to obedience, uh, not anything we do, but because of what you have done. God, I just ask that we would just be open to the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Shakespeare once said that, and I'm going to butcher the quote because I'm not really, you know, that educated. Um, when you find a few good friends, bind them to thy heart with hoops of iron. It's the idea of like good friends are hard to come by. Um, a more modern day philosophical giant of our time, uh, Medea, uh, the character played by Tyler Perry, in one of her, his skits that she plays as an older black woman, um, she said, you know, everybody needs good friends, and good friends are like the roots of a tree. A tree can have all kinds of leaves, can have all kinds of branches, but it's those couple of roots that ground them. And I think anybody that has lived any amount of time can just see the wisdom in that. We all need good Friends, I think pretty much all of us in here have experienced or will experience a time in our lives when we realize that maybe we don't have as many friends as we think. Um, the advent of technology allows us, or at least gives us the illusion like we have this giant network of friends but it's really that core group of friends and us reaching out to others is really where it's at. Um, today, what we're going to look at is Jesus's friendship with the disciples and what it compelled him to teach them. So the main point is Jesus warns, comforts, and instructs his disciples of the abundance of his love. Now, we'll see this in three, uh, three points. First, he does this by being their friend. Second, by telling them to be real. 
And third, by telling them to live in reality. Again, by being their friend, by telling them to be real, and by telling them to live in reality. So first, by being their friend. And this is kind of, this permeates the whole passage. Really, honestly, it permeates the whole Bible. But in our, for our sake, it's just the whole passage. Uh, it has been said, when you think of the word of God, the most important thought that you can think is what you think about him when you hear that word. Let me give an example. If we think God is a harsh and demanding God, we will probably be likely to be very slow to trust him and take him at his words. We won't find him a genuine friend. Or you might maybe go the other route and work yourself down to the bone, devoid of joy, devoid of anything hopeful, and brimming to the top with servile fear. It's like this idea, man, I hope I've done enough for God. I hope nobody sees my fault. I hope God doesn't see my fault. And inevitably, when that fails, I think that we're left with three options. Option one, despair. Option two, we put on a bright, shiny, smiley face and hide the fact that we're in despair. And three, we waffle between despair and faking it and end, uh, eventually lead to some kind of maybe depression, some kind of hopelessness. And let me tell you, that's where Satan wants us. So that's one view of God and how it could affect us. Here's another view. Um, what if we just think God is just this extremely nice guy, the man upstairs, as some country songs put it, uh, who just gives us what we want? And suspiciously enough, what we want is the American dream in some form or fashion. Um, this benevolent guy upstairs naturally wants us, wants what's best for us. But the problem is, if we just think of God only in that way, we will naturally, naturally become more and more self-centered. As the, the God we've made after our own likeness excuses us again and again and again for not obeying, and then encouraging us, just be a nice, good, moral person, and live your best life now. No, suffering with this kind of God doesn't make sense. This nice, benevolent God who just wants my happiness only would not give me suffering. He wants to give me some form of wealth, health, and temporal happiness. That's his goal for my life. Have you ever wondered why some people grow and persevere through suffering? and while others grow in bitterness and despair through suffering? See, what you think about God will allow you to obey God and grow or cause you to rebel against God. You know, one of the reasons God reveals himself in Scripture to us is so that we can live rightly before him for his glory. 
In the surrounding context of our passage, uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, really gives us a clue. Um, I believe Luke is really wanting us to see certain things about who King Jesus, the God of the universe, is. So just give a little bit of context. Um, uh, Jim last week was showing uh, the woes passages, which is the ones I wanted to preach from because I love the woes. I'm just that kind of person. Um, It's true. I love laying down hammers. God help me. Um, Anyway, in there, uh, uh, Jesus was confronting the hypocrisy and the evil of the scribes and the lawyers and the Pharisees. Okay? And in response, this group of religious people are formulating plans and constantly acting them out to try to verbally trap Jesus in something so that, and we can learn this from other parts of the gospel, so that they can murder him. Just think about that. Put yourself in the man Jesus' shoes. Here we have Jesus' countrymen, his people trying to cause conflict, making all these plans so that they could murder him. Let me ask you, what kind of stress might that induce in our lives? I think if you were uh, go back in the Psalms, uh, David and others were familiar with this. Uh, And you know what? I think I don't even need to really give an example. We all know in here intuitively that stress rarely does not affect our other relationships, right? When things are hard in your surrounding life, things tend to be hard in your closest relationships because that stress then spills over and you, instead of, you know, responding in a Christ-like way, respond in short, angry ways, Um, another thing that's happening in Jesus' ministry at this time is there's a a growing popularity for Jesus. We read in verse 1 of chapter 12 that there are thousands of people clamoring for him, even to the point that they're willing to trample one another to get to Jesus. So here we have Jesus being faced with hostile conflict of deadly consequences, That's constantly hounding him, constantly gaslighting him, constantly trying to get him to trip up. And then we have all this, well, fame and these accolades of probably certain people. And it's in these times, in really hard times, in really good times, we really see the true quality of somebody. And what we see as Jesus is dealing with this is not that he gets wallowed down in the stress, not that he gets his big, his head all puffed up and gets high off of fame, but he compassionately loves those who are important to him, and that is his disciples. And he turns to them and begins to warn them, comfort them, and instruct them and explain to them as he provides for them. So let's look down at verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, deadly hostile, 
people are like, I need Jesus, I want Jesus, where's just Jesus? And Jesus is like, I'm helping my friends. So he turns to his disciples first. Even if you go on in verse 4, he call, as he's giving them some pretty hard words, he says, my friends, my friends. Listen, if we're going to understand how Jesus is warning and instructing and comforting us here in this passage, we have to understand the heart of Jesus as he is speaking to the disciples and speaking to us. And really, if you think about it, this is pretty common sense. If there's one thing that can destroy a marriage or any kind of close relationship, it's misrepresenting the other person. A lot of times this looks like assuming the worst in the other person. Sometimes this is uh, overlooking real evil in the hopes that things just get better magically. But let's just stick with uh, we're assuming the worst in somebody, okay? So your significant other or your, your friend comes to you and you're thinking, this person is just so self-centered. They just want stuff out of me. And when they offer a rebuke, uh, advice, instead of taking it as a loving thing, maybe we're tempted to see it as a vindictive attack, a purposeful correction to destroy. We must understand each other so that we can rightly interpret others' words. See, often our response to God and others really is showing what we think about them in our hearts. So if we're going to understand Jesus' words rightly, we're going to have to understand who Jesus is rightly. And I believe here in our context, uh, in in what Luke is presenting to us, Jesus is presenting himself as a loving friend who cares deeply for the disciples in hard times. Now, Jesus' friendship does not lead him to give platitudes of fluffy nothingness. Listen, if you are a friend that does that, or you have friends that that does that, as Medea says, they are not your roots, and you're not being their roots. They're fluff. It's not even real. Real friendship is talking about real things. See, Jesus' friendly disposition compels him to seriously and soberly and lovingly speak hard and real truths into their lives. Now, the first of these two truths that we're looking at today is he tells them to be real. And that is our second point. By telling them to be real... You can find this in verses 1 through 3. You know, God is a loving and merciful God, slow to anger. It's one of my favorite phrases throughout the Old and New Testament. Yet, there is one group God hates. It's hypocrites. And honestly, I think that's putting it a little bit mildly uh, to say God hates hypocrites. Uh, In your own time, you can pick just about any uh, book of prophecy in the Old Testament, but just pick maybe Lamentations and read through that. The utter destruction of God's people in Judah. And that is a response, a righteous response 
to a people for generations who are being hypocrites and oppressing people and making themselves the center of the universe and rebelling against God. I mean, just imagine, if you want to kind of get a picture of what God thinks about hypocrites, just think about Springfield. Hammond's Tower, nothing but rubble. Everything that's green is now black or brown or gray. Nathaniel Green is one giant uh, pothole. Things are tore up. Even Bass Pro is no longer here. There's no, nothing standing. That is the kind of picture of what God's character is a, does when he runs into hypocrites and he decides to finally give them what they deserve. Jesus, being a loving and real friend, friend, knows even his disciples are prone to be hypocritical. And that is why he says in verse 1 this, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, what is hypocrisy? Now, one simple definition is you're saying one thing in your heart, and you're doing something else. You say, oh, I'm a good person. I think we need to love each other. But then in reality, you're a jerk, and you're mean, and you're thoughtless. Um, I'll just give us one example I think is very pertinent to us right now in this month. If you haven't realized it yet, this is the month of June, which in our culture and in our surroundings means it is Pride Month. I don't know if you've noticed that. Maybe you just don't open your eyes in the morning. But it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Now, I want to be very clear up front. Ultimately, um, those who are struggling or have embraced uh, the LGBTQ, I know there's more letters now, um, lifestyle, they're in rebellion against God, just like all of us were before Christ. They are. In the, we want people who are living that lifestyle to come out of it and realize, hey, living according to God's design and trusting him and not making me the center of the universe, but making God the center of the universe is for my ultimate good. Okay? I, want to, I just want to put that there. Now, here's the thing. What's the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? When we encounter somebody who has a different view than us on social matters, and let's just say um, gender identity and things of that nature, how we treat them should be how we want God to treat us in our sin. We have to be a people of love, mercy, and respect. If we are comfortable with joking around and being mean and being demeaning, listen, we have some repenting to do. Okay? We have some repenting to do. You know, one really hard reality is when Christians do this. And I had a friend of mine who told me about this who struggles with what he calls SSA, same-sex attraction. One of the godliest guys I know, like a disciple maker times a hundred, okay? Like, I want to be like him. 
And he was sharing with me in a moment that he struggles with uh, wanting men, okay? And this person has been struggling with it as long as he can basically remember, like, hey, there's guys and there's girls. So, like, his whole life. And he talked about, like, growing up around church and in church, and as he, even when he was maturing um, and, you know, starting to become leaders in different things, he would hear Christians demean and make fun of people who were living in this lifestyle, and you know what he heard? That Christian's not safe for me. That Christian is not something I can go to with this struggle. And I just wonder, when we are hypocrites in a whole myriad of things, how much are we hurting our brothers and sisters in Christ who need help and comfort This kind of hypocrisy is not serving the kingdom. We're active in tearing it down. It is not a Christian thing to do to be unchristlike towards people who struggle with sin. Man, if Jesus was like that, he would have obliterated this earth a long time ago. Let's just take another step. It's one thing to be nice and placid and accept, well, not accepting, but like friendly on the outside. It is a far, far different thing to do that on the inside. See, that's really where hypocrisy lives. Hypocrisy is like, I'm a good person. I'm a great person. We always want to hide our real self, that we are self-righteous. I mean, what happens when the socially repugnant person walks through the door? Whether that be somebody covered in tattoos, whether that be a liberal, whether that be a conservative, whether that be a Green Bay Packers fan or a Chief fan. <laughs> what happens in your heart and what you're thinking when they walk through the door? God, Jesus, in a loving and serious way, says, listen, don't be like the Pharisees. And he gives them, he gives the disciples something very important to focus on, and that can be found in verse 2. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. There will be a day for believers and unbelievers alike that all lies will be exposed, all hypocrisies find out and laid bare, and no one will be able to fake anyone, especially God, on that last day of judgment. And Jesus, as a loving friend, is saying, listen, look to the future. Your life cannot be hidden. And this then should propel us, like, oh my goodness, I need help. I need Christ. See, Jesus is warning his disciples that everything we say in secret, whether that's in private with, you know, your trusted friend, or in your heart, will be exposed. Look at uh, verse 3. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetop. Jesus wants us 
to remember the final judgment so that we don't fall into hypocrisy. Now, if you're feeling convicted like I am, please do not allow this conviction to discourage you from obedience, but rather propel you or push you towards Christ. Jesus cares about the truth, and he cares about having a holy people, and he's in the business to lovingly help his friends to be that. He does not want us to be fake like the Pharisees. He wants, to be, he wants us to be real like Jesus. Jesus yearns for us to be a people who are not hypocritical. And he wants to help us. And one of the ways he wants to help us is for us to keep in mind the final judgment so that we just don't live in the temporary now. I think sometimes we get really uh, messed up when we just focus on now and forget about eternal things. And when we focus on eternal things, I promise you, you're going to start really seeing your shortfalls. And you, if, you're, if you're a Christian, that's going to lead you to the foot of the cross and asking for help. And that's where Jesus wants us to go. Because listen, you and I cannot stop our various hypocrisies without the loving, grace-filled hands of the Savior through the Spirit. Jesus wants us to be real on the inside so that we can be real on the outside. And that leads us to our uh, third and final point. By telling them to live in reality. Okay, So Jesus is loving them by being their friends, loving them by telling them to uh, be real, and now he's telling them to live in reality. Now, if you're like me, you probably have watched one or two funny videos on the internet or YouTube, and one of my all-time favorites uh, is like, you know, people just busily on their phone texting or probably at this point scrolling through uh, some kind of social media and they're just walking in public. And like people like walking into uh, to ponds or uh, walking into posts or stumbling over stuff and the phone goes flying like you catch us on the security camera. Um, what I think Jesus wants us to see here is that when we are focusing on the wrong fear, we are not living in reality, just like the person who is focused on their phone is not living in the real reality. If I could sum up simply, Jesus is saying, don't live your life in the fear of man. Live your life in the fear of God. The Pharisees and the lawyers live their life in the fear of man because the pride of their hearts was just screaming to them, you got this figured out. Look at all these people that are below you. And you know what that did? It blinded them to the truth that God was in their midst. They were not living in reality. Again, to understand rightly this passage, we need to see the, the attitude of Jesus here. And when he's calling them, my friends, Jesus is not wagging his finger and saying, disciples, you better stop fearing these people. Get in line, get behind me. Let's go, 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 go. That is not how he is talking to the disciples. We have a fear problem. And the thing is, we can fear without sinning, but when we give in to our fears and give in to our concerns so that it leads us to sin, and there's about a 
billion ways that can lead us into sin. Realizing when we do that, we're losing sight of God. The love of people's praise and the pride of thinking they had it all figured out blinded the Pharisees and the lawyers to the fact that God himself was right next to them. And Jesus wants us and his his disciples to know when we fall into this pit of wanting to please others, a.k.a. fearing what they think and say, we are living in a false reality. So Jesus and his loving compassionate heart for his disciples shows them where they need to have their focus. Their focus doesn't need to be on all their fears and concerns of this world. It needs to be on the sovereign God of the universe. Look down in verse 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, Fear him. Now, the fear of the Lord is a gateway and a reality we live in that leads us to all wisdom. That's throughout Proverbs and scriptures. Uh, one way I was thinking about this as I was um, you know, chewing on this passage, um, there was a, a series that came out last year. My nerd friends would be like, yeah, it's awesome. Uh, the, the, the Ring of Power, uh, it's the most like, beautiful thing ever created, at least by mankind, I think. And there's a scene um, where Elrond, one of these elves, they come to you know, this kind of pretty but kind of blank uh, uh, mountain ravine. And they're like at the side of this mountain. And there's this, this uh, gate kind of or door. It's kind of ornately carved, but it's kind of simple. You know, uh, When we think about the fear of the Lord, I can think it's kind of like this. It's like, okay, I, I see like we're supposed to fear God. It leads us to all wisdom, but I don't see how that leads us to all wisdom. And through the show, uh, Elrond and his uh, wise, elvish ways knuckles himself into uh, the door. And what's behind the door is this huge civilization and this ornate, giant kingdom inside the mountain, um, the Mines of Moria. Okay? When we live in reality and step into the fear of God, this unlocks our ability, by God's grace, to really see who God is. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is rightly understanding who God is and this reality greatly affecting our hearts and lives. Okay? Both things are important. Understanding who God is and this affecting our hearts and lives. We need to live in the reality of who God is. God is holy. I said at the beginning of the sermon, the most important thought that we can think is what do we think about when we think of God? But that's not the most important thought. The most important thought is, what does God think of us? God is incomprehensibly powerful, immeasurably eternal, righteous and inscrutably perfect in all of his justice and judgment. He is so incomprehensibly all-knowing down to the last nano detail of every nano square inch of every place in the known universe and beyond. And we 
of a tiny, tiny speck. We are less than a speck on a speck of a speck that's smaller than any other speck in all of the, I, can't, I don't even know, Google specs of all the war, uh, creation. And God created all of these things with mere words. And he did not lose one ounce of energy in doing it. God's justice, his love, his mercy, his compassion are all aboundlessly eternal and more perfect and pure and white hot than we can ever imagine on earth. This is the God whom we are to fear. If you can flippantly take God lightly and his commands and his words lightly, we are not living in the reality of God, but we are living in a false reality, pathetically constructed of lies. In the Old Testament, the word for fear has a connotation of trembling. Let me ask you, have, how often do we tremble when we think about who God is? Our friend Jesus is telling us, this is where we will find our strength, and this is where we'll be able to live in God's reality and not fear others. You ever wondered how Jesus had, was be able to be fearless, at least in the sense of being able to obey God? He had the fear of the Lord. Now, this is, this is not the kind of fear, uh, we're not talking about like servile fear, or like this uh, fear of, uh, oh, I'm going to be like, hated and destroyed. The fear of the Lord is not a repulsing fear, like if um, you know, somebody came up here with a gun, they are trying to like force you back. The fear of the Lord is very different. The fear of the Lord is a drawing towards fear of awe and wonder. Did you know God promised his new covenant people in the Old Testament that one day he would put the fear of the Lord in their hearts as a promise. And in Jeremiah 32, verse 39 through 40, we read, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. It is a good thing that we fear the Lord. Verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. The fear of the Lord, which God gives us when we are saved, draws us to God instead of repulses us. But this, is, this withdrawing to us is not this lackadaisical, fluffy, careless stroll between God, to, towards God. Look down in verse 5 of Luke again. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear whom after he has killed has the authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You may be thinking, okay, how can the fact that God can put me eternally into hell draw me closer to him? Seems kind of hard to understand that. Jesus probably anticipating this 
conflict in the disciples' mind um, explains it in verse 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs of your heads are all numbered. Fear not. You are more value than many sparrows. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, listen, I know everything. I know everything down to the last nano detail. I know like all these little brown birds that poop on your cars. I know each one of them, but, and I know how many feathers are on them. I know how far they've flown. I know when they're going to die. I know everything, and there is such little worth in your society. And I know you down to the last detail. For us who have hair in here, they know every hair follicle or the shape of your head, whatever. God knows all of these things, and what he is saying is you are far more value than all of that. Far more value than all of that. And listen, if we're going to understand the magnitude of this truth, we first have to rightly understand who God is and who we are. God is holy and all-powerful and eternal and good, and we are not. We are sinful people deserving of God's hell. Yet, God says, listen, disciples, you knuckleheads, I love you. He treasures them. How can this be? How can the perfect God of the universe love and treasure pitiful, self-centered, and oftentimes prone to hypocrisy people? Again, the new covenant laid out in Jeremiah explains it to us. In Jeremiah 33, 8-9, we read, I will cleanse them from all of their guilt of their sin against me. Man, who do we sin against primarily here? God. And I will forgive all of the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all nations and all of the earth who shall bear hear of all the goods that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. We will fear and tremble at the good, what the good God does for us. And what is the good God does for us in this passage? He cleanses us from our sins. And let me ask you, get ready, it's the Sunday school answer. How does he do this? Say it louder. That was pathetic. Let's try again. How does he cleanse us? A little bit better, good. We are not repulsed by God's power because the very power that should destroy us is the very power by God's grace that saves us. You see, when we take God lightly, I promise you, your sins will be heavy. We will fear and tremble at the unfathomable blessings at being united to God because it was accomplished by Jesus who lived out his teaching, who lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, paid for the wrath that we deserve, was, and then rose again on the third day, 
so that we could be a redeemed people. And this is how we are able to live out Christ's commands. And this is what a true friend's like, friend is like. You know the passage. No greater love is this. The one lays his life down for his friends. Our, friends, our friend, Jesus, desires, desires a people who are real, who live in the reality of God and not the fear of man or love of self. So today, wherever you're at in your life, maybe you're an unbeliever, I tell you, there is only life in Christ. You thought, God's got to just like show me all of this stuff. And I, Listen, who are you compared to God? We've got to submit to God and trust in him, and he will pour his love into us. Maybe you're a Christian and you're kind of struggling with this hypocrisy and this fear of man. Listen, we sang it earlier, but he gave us this thing called the church, which he happens to love very, very much. And the church is us. We are to encourage and exhort one another, as long as today is called today, to be more Christ-like and to be open to that. Be honest with your uh, close Christian friends. Repent and help them to repent and ask God to help in those areas. Because God, listen, God wants you to be like him. And he's not doing, doing it in this like, you've got to do it right now. You've got to submit. You've got to figure this out. Go, go, go. No, he is doing this in an understanding, patient, compassionate way because his blood was enough to save you. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your goodness and your love and your care and what kind of friendship you extend to sinners who are selfish. God, I just ask that you would uh, encourage us to live uh, real and lives in reality. And may we not do that in just this, oh, i got to make Jesus love me, but realize that Jesus first showed his love to, to us. And that is where we find hope and strength. God, demolish any um, things that are getting in our way to coming to you. We just ask by the power of your spirit to move on your people, to move on those who are going to come to you, and that we may submit our lives completely to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.